Well, maybe like many of you, I'm not the kind of person that wants a lot of enemies. I think when I take that personality test, I'm the golden retriever guy. I'm the guy that like, I want to be liked by people and I like people, right? I, I don't want a lot of enemies. And maybe like you, I'm the kind of person that I don't think I have a lot of enemies. At least I don't, I don't think so. I don't want them and I don't think I have many of them. But the reality is, unfortunately, I will have enemies because I'm one of God's people. An enemy is a person who feels hatred for another person, who has harmful designs against another person. A person that engages in antagonistic sort of uh, attacks against another person. An, an, An enemy is an adversary. And Jesus said that his people would have enemies. He says that his people will be hated by other people. Jesus said, and you will be hated by all People for my name's sake. We will have enemies, people who hate us simply because we are Christians. Jesus said that there will be people who have harmful designs against us just because we're Christians. Jesus says they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will put you to death. And Jesus says there will be people who are enemies of his people who who are actually just against his people because they're against him and they're with him. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And sometimes, in some cultures, the people of God experience these things from their enemies um, in very overt and in sometimes physically harmful ways. And there are Christians around the world who experience an overtly and and physically harmful kind of attack from from the enemies of God, from from people that that see them as God's people and and make them their enemies. That, That happens around the world, and it happens around the world today. But in our context and in our culture, our enemies most often come against us in more subtle ways that are not so much physically harmful, but but socially they can be very harmful. And these subtle attacks, they often are the hardest ones to deal with because it's hard to discern them. They're not meant to feel like people are attacking us. But in the end, they are because they're attacking him. And I want to tell you, this is nothing new for God's people. We see it all the way back here in Nehemiah chapter 6. And we see three subtle, but I think they're pretty sinister kind of forms of attacks that come against God's people to discourage them from the work that God has clearly called them to do. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at what are those three attacks? You know, how do the people of God in Nehemiah's day respond? And I'm going to do my best to contextualize this for our day and and for us to talk through a little bit about how, how maybe we would experience these same kinds of things and how Jesus would call us to respond. We find the first one in verses 1 to 4. Let's just look at verses 1 to 2 for now. It says, When Sanballat and Tobiah... And Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, apparently God's people had enemies then, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates. That's an important part. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet out together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. The first line of attack, I think, today um, among God's people from God's enemies is, is really common interest. Common interest. Again, this is very subtle. That might sound really good. Common interest. You see, Nehemiah's central interest was what? Someone? 
Build, there we go, build the wall. We're in the book of Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah's central interest was building the wall. was not a trick question, right? (laughs) Building the wall so God's people could be safe in the city of Jerusalem, so that they could flourish, and so that they could be a city on the hill to all the nations, including the nations that Sanballat and Geshem were part of it, just as God had always intended for his people to be. This was the central work. And to come against the desire of God and the work of his people to this end, Sambalot and Geshem, they didn't try to fight with God's people. They simply tried to distract them. Get away from the central work that you're supposed to be doing. Meet us in the middle. Literally, Ono was geographically in the middle. It was There was Jerusalem, there was where the the enemies of God's people were, and there was Ono. It was literally a field in the middle, geographically. And what they're saying is, meet us in the middle. Meet us on some common ground. Yeah, you've got all this stuff going on in Jerusalem, and and we understand all that. I think what Sanballat and, and Geshem were essentially saying is, you seem really focused on building your city and doing your own thing. And that might be really good for you. But there are a lot of other things that the people in this whole region need. There's a lot of things that people need, and, and, and we need your help sort of to that end. Let's meet in the middle. Let's talk about all the things that we can do for the common good of everyone. I think this morning we see the subtlety that sometimes the best way to, to, to distract God's people from doing the central work that God has called them to do is to get them focused on other work. Listen to me. Other good work. That's not the central work that God has called his people to do. And the enemies of God were doing it in that day, and they're doing it in our day, and guess what? It's working. It's working. I think in our day, we call this the social gospel. And the social gospel says that that Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose, and he taught, and he did all that he did, so that as Christians, we can bring a better way of life to, to all kinds of people. And And the thing about different gospels is that they have a a subtle truth to them. Yes, of course, we're supposed to bring a different and better way of life to everyone. And we're supposed to be, as Christians, people who are looking out for the common good of all people. Yes and amen. And of course, because Jesus gives us the truth of the kingdom. And we're supposed to bring the, the kingdom to bear on the lives of people that we're close to and on systems and structures and everything. Yes, of course. The social gospel says things like in the city, for the city. Of course we're in the city. Of course we're for the city. The social gospel is not the gospel. It's it's, it's not the central work that God's called us to. People today might say things like, well, it seems like you guys are pretty focused on gathering together to worship on Sundays and training how you might evangelize or you call it proselytize, whatever you guys do, and then taking care of your own needs and your own selves. But we have all this other stuff going on. Like people need better health care and they need to be fed with soup kitchens and the like and homeless need to be sheltered and orphans need to be cared for and, you know, rehab centers need to be built because people struggle with addictions and people's lives are really broken and we need your help. And we'd say, yes, and of course. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want to as humbly as I can this morning say, Christians have been doing all of that for a long time. And as humbly as I can say it, most hospitals are run by or have been started by Christians. If they're not anymore, they were started by them. I would humbly say, 
I believe we've started more orphanages and more soup kitchens and more homeless shelters and more drug rehab centers. Of course, this is what Christians do because we love people who are cared or created in the image and likeness of God. Of course, we want to be part of the common good, but we have a central work to do. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want to tell you the central work that Christians have to do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help people follow him, which we call being disciples of Jesus. This is our central work. A friend of mine recently was helping me understand this. He, he shared with me an analogy that a, a pastor in South Africa that he's friends with shared with him, and he shared it with me, and, and, and it really helped me, and I want to share it with you this morning. He said, if you're a Christian, think about life here on earth as like a train station. And that train station, there's, there's one track, and there's a, it's northbound and it's southbound. You can go one of two ways when you get in the station. And the northbound train doesn't have a lot of folks on it. But, but it goes to a great place, and the southbound train has lots of folks on it because everyone says that's a much better ride, and it's going to go to somewhere that's actually pretty good. And as Christians, our one job in the train station is to get as many people as we can on the northbound train. But the tragedy is today that most Christians spend most of their time just trying to make the train station a more beautiful place. We have one job, one primary job, to get folks on the northbound train. And I wonder if the church in America is really shrinking because we failed to do enough for the common good of everyone. I just listen, we have done so much common good, and we will continue to do because that's what God calls us to. Or is the church shrinking because we've been distracted or we failed to do enough of the central work that God has called us to do, which is making disciples. How did Nehemiah respond to this common interest distraction? Well, it tells us in verse three. And I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. How does Nehemiah respond? He responds graciously and he responds truthfully. It says that Nehemiah knew that they intended to do him harm. They're do, talking about all this common interest stuff, but like behind the scenes, they don't care about that at all. They're still the enemies of God that intend to do him harm. Nehemiah could have responded in, in a way that was, was harsh. He knew their interest. He didn't respond though with unnecessary antagonism. He gave them an unwarranted amount of grace. He was gracious with them, and he was truthful with them. I have a great work that I have to do. God has called me to do this thing, build the wall. God has called us to do this thing, grow and multiply disciples. And we can, as Christians, do both of those things. We can share things truthfully, and we can share them graciously as well. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look what John says next. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Look, he has made him known. How has Jesus made the Father known? By coming with grace and truth. How will God's people make Jesus Christ known to the world today? By living and, and, with, and communicating with grace and truth. Showing grace and truth when confronted with opposition, it's the best way to image Jesus to those who are opposing us. 
well, if this first distraction didn't work, the enemies of God have a second strategy. It's in verse 5. Look at it. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. If the distraction of common interest doesn't work, distracting us from our central interest, the second line of attack is character assassination, right? The second strategy is connected to the first. It says the fifth time his servant sent to me. And I think what Sanballat and Geshem are essentially saying or thinking is, like, if you're not willing to set aside the work that's most important to you, to join us in the work that's important for everyone, then we'll make sure that everyone knows, and we'll make sure especially that the king knows, we'll make sure people in authority know that you're the kind of people that are unkind. The greatest value in our culture is to be kind. We'll, we'll make sure people know you're unkind. You're not the kind of people that actually want to help with the common good. And to come against God and God's desires and the work of his people, Sanballat and Geshem, they don't try to harm God's people physically. That would have created too much sort of social backlash. No, no, they're just trying to harm them socially. And I think this morning this reminds us that sometimes the best way to distract God's people from the work God has called them to do is to cause them to think that if they, if they will, it will hurt them socially if, if they do it. If you do the work Jesus wants you to do, it's going to hurt you socially. That, that, that was a strategy then, and it's a strategy now. And again, it's working. I can't tell you how many times I have seen on social media or heard someone say to another Christian, oh, you're, are, are you that kind of Christian? And what does that mean? It means the kind of Christian that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come to save us from our sin. It means it's the kind of Christian that actually wants to help build hospitals and orphanages and dig wells and do all of it to care for the common good of everyone, but also is willing to say, no, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and people don't come to God the Father except through him. You're one of those kind of Christians. And this is real. I know you know it's real. It's happened to some of you. And this open letter from, to Nehemiah, it would have been read by a lot of people along the way. By the time it got to Nehemiah and was read in his presence, it had already been read in the presence of other people in other cities along the way. They would take the letter, they'd go into a city, and an open letter is an open letter, and they would read it. And people would already believe these things about Nehemiah. You know how this stuff goes. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to be stated. The reason this kind of attack is so genius, and especially in our day with the advent of social media and the way things can get circulated so quickly, is an accusation doesn't have to be true, it just has to be made. And we see this all the time with political head jobs and whatnot where, where, where well, they'll smear someone and, and they know it's not true, and then there's this little tiny re retraction somewhere buried in the newspaper or on the website but the accusation is just out there and everyone just believes that it's true. Maybe this has happened to some of you. It's happened to me. It happened to me at the Village Church. Early on in the life of the Village Church, we were 
we were planting this church and we were replanting the church and things were happening and changing and growing. It was a great season and lots of people were involved and, and some people were not, not happy. And, and there was an open letter, you know, circulated on Facebook. And that, boy, that's fun. Isn't that not fun? We haven't fun yet? <laughs> you know, that happens. Well, how did Nehemiah respond to this? Look at verses 8 and 9. Then I said to him, saying, no such thing as you have said is being done, for you're inventing it out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will, be, it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. How does Nehemiah respond? Again, he responds with grace and truth. And this time, a little bit more truth than grace. Seasoned a little, a little bit with, with grace, but there's more truth here now. He's like, no, 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 what you're saying is wrong. That's never happened, and you're inventing it in your own mind. The only way to respond to rumors like this is to respond truthfully and graciously and quickly. And then just trust God to cover you. You see, this Nehemiah responds graciously, truthfully, and you know what he adds now? Prayerfully. He prays, but oh God, strengthen my hands. Again, grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus has made people known, made the Father known. He's shown us what to do. We respond truthfully. We respond gracefully. And now we respond prayerfully. When people are trying to destroy our reputation through this kind of gossip, listen, you know the only thing that will ultimately guard you is the power of God. You can respond truthfully. You can respond graciously. And we ought to respond prayerfully and say, oh, God, please help me. Please guard me. Please protect me. He's the only one that can vindicate you, protect your reputation, any of that. Nehemiah prays. Does this feel like a warm Mother's Day sermon to you? Is this great? Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Would you like some good news before we get to the end, kind of more than halfway through here? I'm going to give you a little bit. The good news is this, that, that most of the time when this happens, the opposite of the intention actually happens. You, you see what Nehemiah prayed. He said that they intended this so that they would drop, the work would drop from their hands. And then Nehemiah prays on purpose, oh God, strengthen my hands. Most often in the history of, of Christianity, when Christians are persecuted, things actually grow and multiply. When these kind of accusations are made and you think it's over for you, it's actually just the beginning. God is beginning to do some kind of greater work. The good news is, is the intention is to get the work to drop, to get us to drop the work. But what actually happens is the work increases. And I think that's really good news, and I hope it's good news to you in the midst of a kind of a difficult passage this morning. Look, there's one last strategy, okay? And it was, it was brought against Nehemiah and, and his people. We find it in verse 10. It says, now when I went into the house of Shemaniah and the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. If the common interest thing doesn't work and the character assassination thing doesn't work, the third line of attack is, is compromise. It's compromise. And the third strategy is actually connected to the second one. I think what Sanballat and Geshem are essentially thinking is if we can't get Nehemiah and the people of God to stop by calling them into a common interest and them kind of forgetting about their central interest, if we can't get them to stop based on the fear of the character assassination and everything, we'll just, 
we'll just get them to ruin their reputation, not through the character assassination, but through their own like moral compromise. We'll just get them to, to ruin their own character. We don't have to do it for them. They'll do it for themselves. Nehemiah will do it for himself. If Nehemiah would have listened to this so-called prophet who we know was bought off by his enemies, he would have harmed himself morally in two ways. One, one, he would have harmed himself by sinning against God and putting his own safety and his own reputation above the reputation of God and the work that God had called him to do. And I think this, is, this, is, this, this happens quite easily when we are pressured with social pressure and losing social credit and fear or anxiety comes in, and we can be tempted to compromise in some ways, compromise God's reputation and compromise the work God has called us to do for the sake of our own safety. We might kind of take a step back from what we're doing, so we can kind of fade into the background, so this can kind of go past us and sort of go away. Nehemiah could have also sinned by disobeying God in a difficult situation. I think sometimes we think, man, when things get really hard, if, we don't, if we're not obeying Jesus like exactly the way that we should, like, look, he'll understand, he gets it, like, this is tough. They're going to kill you tonight, Nehemiah, so go into the temple. Let's go all the way in. Now, what they're saying is, let's go all the way into the temple, into the most holy place. That was the place that God said that only the high priest could go and only one time a year. God had commanded it to be that way. And what this guy's saying is, hey, that's the place where no one will find you. Let's go in there. It doesn't matter. You can compromise. I know what the law says, but they're killing you tonight, so that's where you need to go. It was a compromise of convenience. And to some people, it might have sounded reasonable, when this happens, our fear leads us to sin, and our sin leads us to lose our reputation. This morning caused me to think about some advice my mom gave to me as a young kid. You know, I kind of got in a little bit of trouble when I was young, and often, and I kind of had a few talking tos, you know, sort of thing. And, and I remember one of the things my mom told me is, Matt, it's going to take you 10 times longer to gain your reputation back than it is to lose it. And you know what? That is true. That is true. And if Nehemiah would have gone in, at very least, it would have taken 10 times longer for him to gain his reputation back than it did for him to lose him. And, and, and at worst, he probably would have just died going in there. That, that's what God said would have happened. Probably would have happened to him. I think this reminds us, sometimes the best way to distract God's people from doing the work God has called them to do is to get them to destroy their own reputation through moral failure. And this worked then. Not with Nehemiah. And it works today. There is a nationally known, actually a, a, a globally known church whose a couple of their pastors have had moral failings recently, and one of them very recently. And I was with a group of guys last night from our church, and we were having steaks, and we were talking and, and fellowshipping and talking about the things of God, and we talked about this thing. We're like, how does that happen? And one of the guys said, I think the reason it happens is because those people think they're untouchable. They think like, hey, God, you know, God will understand or these people will understand. You know, don't you know who I am? God's like, yeah, I know who you are. Just like every other person. I know you. You're just like anyone. Like you're not above this. None of us are above this kind of compromise. How did Nehemiah respond to it? Look at verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? 
And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in there. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. This is why it came. Fear leads to sin. Sin is compromise. Sin and compromise lead to a lost reputation. Nehemiah responds with grace and truth. Now a little bit more truth even than the last time but still seasoned with a bit of grace. But he tells them the truth pretty straight. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Showing grace and truth when confronted by this kind of opposition, again, is the best way to image Jesus to those that are opposing us. He responds graciously. He responds truthfully. And now he responds even more prayerfully. Look at verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You know, as Christians, we can pray for protection from our enemies at the same time as we pray for our enemies. You know that, right? It's not one or the other. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Of course, we pray for our enemies because we obey Jesus. Jesus prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But at the same time, we pray for our enemies. We can pray for protection from our enemies. And that God would do things to protect us from them that, that maybe you'd be uncomfortable even praying. I don't know if you were in the scripture reading plan we have as a church, but if you were, this week we read in Psalms 57 or 54 to 57, and I just want to read a couple of them. Psalm 54, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Nehemiah said, hey, remember what they're doing to me, God. Remember that. Psalm 55, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. When we see these things happening in our culture, we should be praying, God, destroy that. Make it go away. Protect us from these things. Look at Psalm 55. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. And it's not just in the Old Testament or in the Psalms. I mean, in Acts chapter 4, as the apostles are healing and they're preaching and they're arrested, the church says, and now, Lord God, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak your word. Lord, remember what they're doing. See what they're doing. Protect us from these things. So we can continue to do the central thing you've called us to, which is to go grow and multiply disciples. We can pray for our enemies as Christians at the same time that we pray for protection from our enemies as Christians. We can do this because we have a Savior who, who encountered all of these same things. You know, they tried to come across against Jesus with a common interest, especially the Pharisees. Hey, hey, you're teaching this new stuff. Like, we've got a whole system and paradigm that we've kind of taken a long time to set up, and you're going outside of it. Can't you just, can't you just kind of get in line with the things just for the common good of everyone, just keep everything copacetic? You've got to go off and keep saying these things? Jesus had character assassination. Isn't that Joseph and Mary's boy? Like, what is he? Anything good coming out of Nazareth? 
healed others? You can't take care of yourself? Who struck you if you're really the Son of God? Why don't you just bring yourself down from the cross? Son of God. Jesus was tempted with compromise, like all of us. We see it before his ministry by Satan in the wilderness and then all throughout his ministry. Hebrews tells us he was tested in every way that we are as the God-man, yet without sin, without any compromise. And this is the truth of the gospel, that, that Jesus came to live a life without sin, without any compromise on our behalf. He, he never gave in to that common interest thing. He stayed focused on the central interest. He, he never caved during the character assassination and got afraid and sinned. He, he never compromised in any way. He lived a life, perfectly sinless life, on our behalf, the life we could never live. And then he died a, a sinner's death for us on the cross and in our place and for our sins all the time that we get distracted from the central mission for something that's just common to everyone else. All the times that, that we compromise, all the times that those character assassinations come and it weakens us and we take a step back from what God's called us to, all the times we sin against God in that way, it was all placed on Jesus on the cross. And he took the consequence for our sin. And he rose on the third day. Listen, he rose from the third day to defeat our ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he rose, us, rose to give us a new life. I think that's connected to the good news this morning. I think it's something like this, that Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death and will defend us from our enemies as we do the central work that he has called us to do. And Village Church, I hope that that is good news for you today. That Jesus has defeated our ultimate enemies, Satan, sin, and death. We, we, they're done for. And that Jesus will continue to defend us from our enemies as we do the central work that he's called us to do, growing and multiplying disciples. As a church, do we want to participate in the common good of all people? Of course we do. And we will continue to do all of those things. We always have and we always will. Will we stay focused on the central work that Jesus has called us to do? Growing and multiplying disciples? You bet. You bet. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we pause to pray um, this morning for a couple of reasons. Like Nehemiah, we pause to pray because we need it. Lord, we pray we need your help. We need your protection. We pray that you would protect us. We pray that you would provide for us. We pray that you would empower us. We pray that you would fulfill your promise that you said that in those moments you would give us the words to say. We don't need to worry about what we say in those moments that you would give us the words to say. Lord, we need you to give us the grace to respond with grace and truth, not with unnecessary antagonism, but with, with an unwarranted kind of grace to people that are against us just because they're against you, that you'd help us to be the kind of people that respond graciously and truthfully and prayerfully, that we would be the salt of the earth, that we would be a city on the hill, that we would be able to image something of you Jesus, like you image the Father when you came in grace and truth, that we would respond in grace and truth and that we would trust you that your word is true and that as we respond that way, people will see something of us, of you in us. Lord, we 
trust you. 